very good afternoon uh, to all our viewers today. A very good morning to the viewers in Canada, good evening to the viewers in India. And it's an honor to have today with us Mr. Robin Ayub. He's a president, Canadian Language Industry Association, with three decades in business management and executive leadership. He has been focused on business growth and has built up um, uh, his expertise in uh, customer acquisition, increasing the revenue, profits, and many more things to strategically grow your business in different domains. And today we are here with him to discuss on how sustainability can be integrated in growing your business. Thank you so much, Mr. Robin Ayub. It's an honor to have you with us today. Great. Thanks. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Harsha. I appreciate the invitation and I appreciate being part of your show. Well, thanks for the invitation. Thanks for making me part of your audience. I heard a lot about your organization and the good work that you guys do, and uh, I couldn't help but be part of it. So uh, thanks again for the invite. I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Um, you, you have such a large experience in um, developing businesses and you graduated in science in Lebanon and presently you're leading president, being a president of Canadian Language Industry Association. So it's quite a starking change. How has your journey been? So uh, thank you for the question. Very, inter very interesting question, by the way. And um, I call it my story. You know, how did I get to where I am right now? Um, I never, you know, this is brand new for this large audience to be saying this because I don't talk about it much, but this is the first time I'll be talking about it. So that's pretty intriguing as well. I was born and raised in uh, Lebanon. By the age of five, the civil war started in Lebanon. And I lived through that until I was only in my early 20s during which uh, you had to do like any civil war, like we're watching right now on television unfolding in Ukraine. This was happening in my hometown and where I grew up in, in, in Lebanon as well. So we had to survive the, as a family, mom and dad, uh, they had five kids. They had to survive the civil war. They had to try to give us education as much as they can, send us to school, etc. in the middle of all this. I escaped, long story short, I gained, I gained my education in Lebanon. I had my degree in computer science. And uh, during which I was working for a, uh, a bank, I remember I started my work early with like everybody else does during college. Uh, during um, You do get a job in, in, in a, somewhere to sustain what you, your education, basically. So I got a job as a teller at a bank while I was going through my education. As soon as I graduated, there was a, a major incident. I was coming back from, a, uh, from my office. And uh, during the, uh, the war, uh, there were shelling on the highway as I was driving. And a, um, I remember there were shells that fell around me in, in the area. And never, long story short, I drifted off the road because of that. Ended up in an accident. I went to, uh, uh, ended up in a uh, you know, hospital to treat me a little bit. And after I uh, finished, luckily it was not life-threatening um, uh, life-threatening injuries or anything. But after I finished uh, with the medical uh, treatment, and I'm talking like early 20s, I ended up asking myself a question. There's got to be a better life out there. You know, early, career, early in my life, and I only projected life to be what it is, what I grew up to know, what I, 
what I saw what I, in my own eyes when I was a kid. So I started asking myself the question, you know, where is, where could be a better life for me outside? So I took my younger brother with me. We're five kids. So I took my younger brother with me and we escaped uh, and we went to uh, Cyprus. We got a job and we started working. And then my, uh, our house where we used to live in the, in, in the Beirut region, during that time, uh, mom and dad and three of my siblings were still left in Lebanon. Uh, that house got destroyed because of the war. And mom and dad had no place to go. So we wanted to figure out how to rescue the rest of the family. And uh, so we ended up trying to figure out where do we go from here? I mean, we're in Cyprus, not because we want to immigrate to anywhere else. We're just trying to shelter ourselves from, from all the hostilities that were going on. So I ended up going to ask around. So we found a place, you know, at the time, uh, the uh, Canadian, um, uh, the Canadian government, uh, luckily, and uh, thanks to the Canadian government was accepting immigrants to come to Canada. And we had nowhere else to go. So we ended up coming to Canada, bringing the whole family to Canada. I came to Canada and uh, in 1990, in the middle of February, you know, we lived in the Middle East all of our life and you land in Canada in the middle, in the middle of February. That's not, that's a shock. It's a shock to the system. So we ended up in Canada and um, I landed in Canada and did, I didn't speak a word of English at the time. And I only spoke uh, French and Arabic. Those are my, uh, Arabic is the language of mom, mom and dad and the house that we grew up in. And uh, French is the school language. So when you go to school in Lebanon, you study, you study French. So I didn't speak a word of English. And uh, we were in Montreal at the time. I figured, you know, it's a big uh, city. I don't want to be in a big city. I just came from a big city. I didn't end well. So <laughs> I said, let's go figure out where can we go from here. We ended up going to a, the province of New Brunswick in a small town called Fredericton, which is the capital of the province at the time. And arriving to Canada was nothing, really. Uh, we had a few dollars in our pocket, nothing else. So ended up staying at the basement of a church for a couple of weeks <laughs> until we figure out what we need to do. I got my first job, nothing in the, in the, in the education that I took, it had nothing to do with the job that I initially obtained. You know, I'm proud to say I uh, started as a, in a small menial jobs doing construction work. And then the head of the company where I was doing the, uh, basically sweeping the floor, that's what I started doing. He figured that I'm a computer programmer. Somebody told him, I, again, I don't speak English. So there was somebody in a intermediary trying to uh, fix all these conversations, trying to translate all these conversations. And that's maybe down the road why I drifted into like localization business. Long story short, I was doing construction during the day. I was doing programming for that individual at night. And um, it mushroomed from there. My name got out that I'm a computer programmer. So I started working for companies like Blue Cross, Purolator, et cetera. And from there on, I... I uh, went to telecom and from in telecom, I did um, system engineering and network design and a few other things like telecom would do. And uh, one day uh, we were uh, supposed to be presenting to a customer about our, you know, sales manager supposed to do it. I was supposed to help them design the system. So the sales manager came in, didn't make it, was not able to come to the meeting. I remember the CEO of the organization coming into me and telling me, hey, uh, you know, today uh, you're going to be the salesperson. I said, no, I'm an engineer. I don't do sales. And <laughs> he said, no, today you are going to do sales. So I couldn't refuse uh, the, uh, the instructions uh, or, the, uh, or what he asked. So I ended up going to uh, the meeting, being the, playing the role of a sales manager, although I'm not a sales manager. 
And so, and I, but on my way to the meeting, I said, what was the objective? What do you want me to do in this meeting? He said, Robin, we want to win the deal, like typical salespeople, right? They want to win the deal. So I went in, I did the presentation for the client, and we ended up winning the, winning the deal. And that was my shift in my entire life. Because right after that meeting, the CEO of a large, large organization takes me out for lunch. And he tells me, from here on, you're a salesperson. Forget all that stuff about technical and doing all the design and computers and all that stuff. You're a salesperson now. And my career took off in that direction in the business development, which I'm blessed with. Uh, and I'm blessed to know what I know now and the experience that I've gained and uh, what doors this particular shift in my life has opened to me. It's incredible. I look back on my journey and where I am right now and what I was able to accomplish in that track. And I am so blessed to be where I am right now. And I'm so thankful for everyone who came across my path along the way. Every individual, I'll never forget them. And someday, somehow, I will write a book and they will all be mentioned. <laughs> so here I am right now. I am uh, working today where I am right now. Fast forward to where I am. I am the uh, president of the uh, Canadian Language Industry Association. I have a, about two decades in experience, experience in the localization industry. I've held a variety of positions or various positions in the, in the industry. I started as an account manager. I uh, drifted to the industry by accident. That's another story. I was coming back from a uh, business trip. I was flying to a city called Moncton, New Brunswick. There was somebody sitting on the, uh, beside me, an, an old colleague of mine I haven't seen for a while. He asked me if I would be willing to go work for him. I said, well, this is the job. He said, I would like you to manage my uh, sales team, uh, VP of Business Development. I said, okay, I'll give it a try. So I took on the job. And uh, from there on, 20 years later, here I am. So I grew that company. We ended up selling the company to somebody else. And we went through another transaction of selling the company to another bigger company. And now here we are. It's um, a very interesting journey, I must say. And uh, you've, uh, you've climbed up from Beirut to uh, where you are, uh, experiencing a lot of hardships, trials, and tribulations. But now that uh, you are the president for the Canadian Language uh, <clears throat> Association and language talks a lot about cultural her heritage, and background of a person, especially coming from where you are coming. Mm -hmm. What are the initiatives taken to ensure inclusivity in diversity in the Canadian industries? Okay, great, great question as well. As you know, translation and localization industry, it's about connecting people. It's about being the bridge between various demographics. It's being, it's, it's about passing that message along between a group that wants to understand a language in a certain language of their choice and a, um, a business or an entity or another group that wants to communicate that message to them. So this is what the fundamental, if you will, about the industry, which by design allow us to be more inclusive. So for instance, our industry in Canada covers hundreds of languages. So that allows us to employ people in a variety of origins, variety of mother tongues, because we need people to speak those languages. So by design, the industry is opening opportunities for various demographics, for various ethnic groups, because we need them. We need to, you know, that's 
a a business reason and b a community reason so we want to make sure that we're communicating for instance the city that i live in which is called toronto in in, in canada here the city is a melting pot of variety of de various demographics so you know the last count i have in toronto there's about 128 spoken languages so if you are a business in the localization industry or the translation industry in Canada, you've got to be able to accommodate these groups. And how do you do that? Is by reaching out to these groups and building bridges and bringing them over to you in terms of either being a freelancer contractors for us, so creating jobs for them, or hiring them permanent permanently on your staff. So those the business that we're in, it's I think it could be used as an example of inclusivity in the way we work with those, um, with, with each other as groups of humanity or humans that we're trying to communicate together. So uh, that, that's very inspiring for the work that you're doing. But Canada also holds a history of discrimination like many other countries do on the factors of color and race. What are the initiatives taken by your association to conserve language of aboriginals and other minority communities? So, great question as well. The discrimination that you speak about in Canada, it is, in a, you know, if you, if you look at what's coming out of the Canadian government, especially in the, uh, the reconciliation initiative that the government has started, uh, the uh, current government has started a few years back now with our Aboriginal community in, in Canada. That's, that's pretty awesome uh, the way this is progressing. It's opening a lot of doors for, and it's putting a lot of items on the table that were not possible before. For instance, as an example, for instance, the Canadian government now, uh, before this initiative, had, you know, we, if you look at the, um, take example, for instance, the parliamentary debates, for instance, that were translated into two languages. English and French. After the reconciliation, we're recognizing as a country five Aboriginal languages to be added to those communication. So this is on the level of our industry that we're currently uh, we're currently dealing with. Canada, by 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 you know in general, is a, a peaceful country. So you don't see what you see in various other countries when it comes to the ethnicities, etc. Uh, I remember, and I live in, 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 like I told you, I live in, in Toronto. I mean, I feel like, you know, we're, and as part of my, as part of my, uh, you know, as volunteer, I do a lot of other volunteer work in, in, in terms of our community. And I see all these groups of, of individuals or groups of uh, various backgrounds. Canada is, a, is an immigrant country. You know, people come from various parts of the world and they settle here. Some of us arrived a little earlier. Some of them are arriving now. We recognize the fact that, you know, uh, we all come from different places and like we come here to make uh, something better of our lives altogether. It doesn't matter what the uh, what the ethnic origin is or what the origin of that individual is. It doesn't preclude you, A, of being human. We are all human at the end of the day. We're all trying to do the best we can. We're all trying to live our lives better. And you can see that embedded in everything that this country has to offer in the laws that we have. You can see it in the opportunities that we're offering to it's open to everybody. And there was this concrete effort, for instance, in Canada to promote women, promote different genders, promote different ethnics, ethnic groups. And there is measurements and metrics that these companies have to report on, not just necessarily the localization industry, various other industries. They have to register and 
report on, you know, uh, the, their employees, their freelancers, their contractors, you know, and, and report that back to the um, uh, various government institutions. So that's part of the process that we currently have. It doesn't, you know, if, if you leave it to an individual organization, say, hey, I want you to be more inclusive. I'm sure, you know, many companies will, you know, will, will, be, will have that direction, at, you know, at the end of the day. But if you combine the inclusivity plus some sort of a reporting, I think that's soft enforcement, if you will. And I don't know if I can use the word enforcement in this case, but it would offer some sort of a reporting on the metrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely, definitely. Um, now, moving on from that. Uh, you have been a thorough person to develop and grow business across industry verticals. Mm -hmm. Now, while doing so, do you come across any concerns of migrant workers? And uh, if so, how do you resolve the concerns of migrant workers? Because Canada has so many migrants and you yourself mm -hmm. uh, come from that background. So uh, how do you resolve that? So thanks for the question. Uh, this is near and dear to my heart because I'm an immigrant. I landed in this country a little earlier, you know, but I'm still an immigrant, although I am Canadian now. And uh, but I still feel like I, you know, when I when I talk to a new immigrant, I feel like I've been there. I was there. I was part of that group that came to this country and didn't know where to start. And so the main issue in uh, in become in being an immigrant in this country is when you land first, you need somebody to assist you to help you get started in this country. You've got a brand new country. It's a shock to the system. A brand new country, maybe the, maybe the traditions are a little bit different from where you come. Maybe your qualification as an individual, you're a pharmacist, you're an engineer back where you came from. How do you start in Canada? How do you begin here? Who gives you a chance? And this is where the rubber hit the road. So in our business, for instance, uh, when we need translators, and this is something, uh, you know, the organization I work for a few years back, uh, now a little less, but a few years back, we were very involved in this, where we actually participated in an immigration program with the government to help people immigrate to this country so they become translators and working for us as translators, as full-time employees. At the other, the other end of it, it has been back in the days when I was in the telecom uh, business or in the tech business. You know, we've hired, I've hired engineers, we've hired, you know, tech people who are just landed in the country to give them a chance to allow them to establish some sort of a foothold in terms of their career development here in the country. And that's the, that's, that's what they needed at the time. And that's where, and some of those guys and a lot of them actually, they're flourishing in their career right now. I'm still in contact with a lot of them. And uh, the, what we've done for them at the time and what we've done, we'll continue to do for them uh, in, in some cases, if they're still employed with us, it helped quite a bit. Uh, it helped tremendously. You don't know the anxiety and, and the stress moving from one country to another until you tried it. And when you come to a country and there's a lot of anxiety and stress associated with this, and I speak about that because I've been there 100%. And when somebody gives you a chance to lift you up, that's the chance that you cannot miss. And that's the chance that everybody needs. I, I totally uh, agree with you and comprehend with you. It's uh, quite a journey and uh, yeah, I, 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 I totally understand. Since you are handling Fortune 2000 companies at strategic board level, uh, do you all consider ESG while you are developing business or business acquisitions, mergers, 
uh, what and what, if so, what are mm. the factors that you all consider? Yeah, so a couple of correction. One is I'm not handling acquisition for Fortune 2000. B, was I involved in mergers and acquisition? Of course I was in variety of levels. So uh, discussions in, in between, scouting for per, perhaps a, an acquisition target. Yes, I was involved in those. The fundamental question, though, the basic of the question still exists. And I understand where you're coming from. So do you consider, and I, let me rephrase what you just said, do you consider the ESG element in uh, an acquisition process? Of course, uh, it has to line up. Any acquisition, it has to meet the cultural parallels, if you will. So if you look at an acquisition now and, it, and the culture doesn't meet, that means it's not going to be successful. So you look, what I mean by culture is the company culture. So company culture A wants to buy company B. If the cultures are not parallel business-wise, you know, it doesn't work because then you're going to have a clash and then that transaction is going to fail anyway. So the emphasis starts from, do we have, you know, is beside all the mathematics around, is it successful business? How much do you want for the business? The second question is, on the human side of it, does it really fit? And what I mean by that is, is there, uh, you know, do they have the same, let's say, hiring culture, measuring of the staff? Do they operate in the same fashion that we do operate? NESG is part of it, obviously. And nobody wants to, you know, be, um, be associated with a company that treats their employees strangely, uh, badly, uh, don't have a, you know, don't have a, uh, an equal opportunity hiring process. Why would you, why would you want to do that? So those are my personal opinions, by the way, I, I, uh, uh, been, I've been there. I've, I've touted those before. So, uh, the, you, back to your question, ESG is very important. And also we being an education institution, what are the three topics that you think we should, uh, include to help the businesses to increase the profits plus implement sustainability together. Okay, thank you for uh, the question again. So the three, the, the various topics that you probably should include in your in your program or in your education curriculum. One is speak more or talk more about issues that reflects the concerns and 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 the and the problems that the humanity is facing right now. And uh, the curriculum should target about ways of, of, of solutioning them. So how do we solve some of these problems that we're currently having? And they don't need to be, you know, they, they could be a large problems like, you know, how do we, how do we cure the, how do we cure the globe from various diseases and from various issues, the reliance on a variety of fossil fuels, et cetera. So those could be a conversations to be had, but they don't need to be as, as large as this. From a company perspective, you know, focus on the efficiency. Uh, you know, uh, how do we create profitability? Is by I don't know if you guys talk about it in your curriculum, but there may be an opportunity for things like uh, black belt, six sigma, and a few other things that you probably can emphasize in trying to because those when we talk about doing things efficiently and in sustain in efficiently and use a li as little resources as possible to do something. It doesn't just necessarily increase profitability, but at the same time, it helps the environment. It helps a variety of things. So in, uh, in, in that regard, you know, process improvement as a subject in any conversation is very, is very interesting and very important. And the objective there is do more with less. 
and from a uh, from a variety of ways, this is a great this is a great conversation. You know, you can increase profitability, increase uh, revenue, and you can cure uh, the illness of the society and 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 the and the environment specifically. If you're in a manufacturing environment and you do process improvement continuously and you adopt that in your in your process on a day-to-day basis, you're definitely going to be using less resources to produce more. Thank you. Uh, it's very well said. You can increase your profitability, revenue, as well as kill the illness in the society. Thank you very much on that note, Mr. Robin. Uh, it was an honor to have you and wonderful to learn about your journey. Thank very you so inspiring much. for all, all of us. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.